0: everybody, it's time to begin Sunday school, so please find your seats. I think we have sound coming through. Yes, Greg? I can hear, I can hear, and it looks like you guys can hear me. All right. All right, we're continuing our introduction to the New Testament, and to the Gospels particularly. Today's lesson is entitled, Jesus in the Gospels. Now, last week we learned some general information about the Gospels. We learned the gospel's general purposes, which is twofold, to bring unbelievers into saving faith in Jesus and to strengthen and embolden the faith of those who already believe. We also saw how the gospels have a single, consistent message, though they do feature differences due to different authors, different audiences, and different purposes, different emphases in those purposes. We also discuss why the differences in the Gospels are not really contradictions. They're just natural and complementary pieces of information that give us a fuller picture of the life and work of our Lord and Savior. But let's get more specific about the Gospels now and ask, what does each Gospel uniquely tell us about Jesus? All the Gospels are about Jesus, but what main special truth does each Gospel writer want us to appreciate regarding the Savior. I mentioned last week that the Gospels are often broken down into a fourfold presentation of Jesus' person. That is, that Matthew presents Jesus as king, Mark presents Jesus as servant, Luke presents Jesus as man, and John presents Jesus as God. There is something to this paradigm. But as I said to you last week, we don't want to overemphasize it to the point of suggesting that one of these aspects of Jesus is somehow not present in each gospel. Truly each gospel presents Jesus as king, servant, man, and God. Nevertheless, this traditional division does have something to do with the unique message of each book, the particular emphasis of each author. What I'd like to do is just take this traditional break, the breakdown and refine it just a bit today. Here's our goal in today's class. We're going to investigate the four gospels and attempt to discover what was each author's specific message about Jesus. We have a lot of ground to cover. cover. We clearly don't have time to read each gospel in, to, in totality. So we will be sampling the different gospels and briefly noting significant details that are evident in the Gospels as a whole, or in a a Gospel as a whole. I'm going to find out what does each Gospel tell us or emphasize to us about Jesus. Here's our lesson outline. Going through each Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll go through the order that they appear in our Bibles. Look at each of their specific messages, and then we'll finish by considering the implications of these Different emphases, these different messages for ourselves today. Well, let's pray before we continue. Lord and God, help me to be able to explain your word today. I pray, God, that as we appreciate the unique message of Jesus' gospel, that it would impact us. That we'd be encouraged, emboldened, challenged, convicted, as your word was meant to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start with Matthew. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 1, verse 1. the Pew Bible, that would be page 957. Opening to Matthew. We'll just start by reading the first verse. Matthew 1, verse 1, where it says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, so here's the beginning of our answer to the question. What does Matthew want us to know about Jesus? Matthew opens his book with a genealogy. We won't read through the whole thing. But this genealogy establishes the line of inheritance from Jesus, who Matthew calls Messiah, via Joseph to David to David. To Abraham. Where else have we seen genealogies like this? Old Testament. We also see one in Luke, but this is this is something that the Jews were keen on preserving, the genealogical heritage of the tribe the genealogical heritage of a certain person, and especially the king. They want to have the uh, a line of inheritance. They want to record that the Jews would record that. What is significant about Jesus having a clear connection to David? It has something to do with kingship. The, well, we first of all know that there's the Davidic covenant, where God promised to David, someone from your line will be on the throne, and the throne will belong to your line perpetually. Also, even if it, even without the Davidic covenant, if if Jesus is going to have any claim to kingship, he needs to have some connection to royalty, and he does. Going back to going back to David here. Uh, one of the things, one of the terms we also see in verse one is son of David actually appears a number of times in Matthew's gospel, 10 times, actually more than any other gospel. It appears three times in Mark, three times in Luke and not at all in John. It's a phrase that Matthew, Matthew uses specially son of David to refer to Jesus and has something to do with this genealogy. Speaking of prophecy or prophecy. The Davidic covenant has something to do with uh, prophecy. But look down at Matthew 1, verses 22 to 23. So just a little bit further down. We see this genealogy. And then as the narrative begins regarding Jesus' birth, we have this angelic explanation of Mary's supernatural pregnancy. Look at verses 22 and 23. The angel says, or Matthew says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Anybody remember where this messianic prophecy is from? It's from Isaiah, that's right, chapter 7. Matthew says, Jesus fulfills this prophecy and this is something else that we see very evident in matthew's gospel matthew has a heavy emphasis on old testament scripture especially on how jesus fulfills the old testament as the coming messiah the anointed king of israel i would show you more prophecies but we have to move kind of quickly today so this will just have to be a sample lots of old testament quotations in matthew lots of fulfilled prophecy now look down at matthew chapter 2 verse 2. Here we have one of the events unique to Matthew's gospel. It is the visit of the Magi. No other gospel mentions this event. And for whom are the Magi looking? Look at verse 2. Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So notice, right near the beginning of this gospel, right after Jesus is born, we have someone acknowledging that Jesus is King of the Jews. And this caravan brings royal gifts. But notice what's odd about this statement. Who's making it, a Jew or a Gentile? These are Gentiles. The the one saying, where's the king of the Jews? This is a Gentile. This is somebody not from Israel. And this whole group that comes to worship him and bring him gifts, they're Gentiles. In fact, if we were to look at this account of Jesus' birth, We'll see that oddly, none of the Jews seem to be uh, concerned about whether this uh, this one they're looking for in Bethlehem is really the Messiah or not. The Jews don't seem concerned when these these men come to look for a Messiah. They don't say, "Oh, we need to go find him, find him with you." The Jews only become troubled because. Herod becomes troubled. When when Herod says, "Oh, there's a king that's maybe competing for my power," that says he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. The only concern we see for the Jews is the maintenance of the present political establishment. And this also is a theme in Matthew. We have the acknowledgment from Gentiles and lowly Jews that Jesus is the Messiah and the King, while the majority of Jews. Who are favorable to Jesus at first, they ultimately show themselves indifferent and even hostile to Jesus, their king. Now, to be a king, king needs a kingdom. Look over at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Matthew 3, verses 1 to 2, we read this. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus uses the exact same words a chapter later. Chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17. This is what we read. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. It's approaching. It's very near. Here's another thing we see about Matthew. Central to this book Is the idea of the kingdom, usually referred to by Matthew as the kingdom of heaven. He's uniquely using that phrase, kingdom of heaven, we sometimes see kingdom of God. The word kingdom is used 54 times in Matthew. We can compare this to the other gospels 44 times in Luke. Luke uses the term kingdom 18 times in Mark and three in John. So even just from the use of words, we see kingdom is a big part of Matthew. And we know from our study of the Old Testament that Israel was anxiously awaiting the kingdom. And John and Jesus both announced the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is approaching. But notice what John and Jesus both say. They tell what the appropriate response is to the kingdom coming. And notice what it is. It is repentance, turning from sin, changing your mind about god about your sin resulting in a change of action so we can look we can see further if we just go back to john's speech in matthew 3. look at um a little bit after what we read earlier in matthew 3 verse 2. scan the passage for a second for entrance into god's kingdom on what does john say the people or what does john say specifically the people should not rely he said the kingdom is coming you need to repent don't rely on this what is that thing don't say to yourselves what that's right don't say that abraham is your father Because God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Don't trust in your Jewish heritage. Don't say, well, because I'm a Jew, because I'm part of God's chosen nation, I'm going to receive the kingdom or I'm going to enter the kingdom. It says, no, that's not it. Uh, Okay, where's my spot? Okay, yeah. Only those who repent and bear fruit... That is, who manifest deeds of righteousness, they are the ones who will have a place in God's kingdom. In fact, for those who don't repent, look at chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. What will be the outcome? They will be, they will be burned. This is judgment language. He says, don't say that you're, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Jew, so I'm going to get in. If you don't repent, you are going to be winnowed and you're going to be burned up like chaff. And this should remind us of some language we've heard recently from Malachi, where he said that the kingdom is coming, the Lord is coming, but he's coming in judgment. So you got to make sure that you've repented, that you're actually part of his righteous remnant, because there's a judgment coming. Jesus says the same thing in his Sermon on the Mount. Flip over to Matthew 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus says, and this is one of the famous verses we recognize. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Such truth has striking implications for unrepentant Israel. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13. In this passage, we have the account of the faith-filled centurion, another Gentile who does believe in Jesus as king, king and Messiah. But notice the remarks that Jesus makes regarding the centurion and Israel in verses 11 to 12. So Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So as we saw in the prophets, especially Malachi recently, it is the righteous remnant that will receive the kingdom, not, um, not every single son of Abraham. By the way, Israel has no, or Israel had no excuse for not recognizing Jesus as their Messiah King, because besides fulfilling prophecy, what is Jesus doing throughout the Gospel? Proving his divine kingship. He's manifesting uh, what uh, John calls signs, but miracles. Jesus is doing miracles he's demonstrating his authority he's the king king should be showing authority and that's exactly what jesus does in the book of matthew matthew notes that jesus teaches with striking authority unlike the scribes and pharisees he casts out legions of demons he rebukes the winds and the waves he forgives sins he makes proclamations about the sabbath he heals the sick. He gives miraculous powers to his disciples and sends them out. He even raises the dead. Why record all these things? Well, it's not simply to show that Jesus was compassionate, or that, um, oh yeah, not simply so that Jesus was compassionate, but that he has authority. He has the divine authority of God. And that's why he demonstrates that in his miracles and in his teaching. So, we have this kingdom coming, and yet we have Israel not ready to receive the kingdom. So, what happened to the kingdom? Was the promised kingdom lost due to Israel's sin and unbelief? Did God's plan just fail? Well, look over to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. It's in this passage where Jesus starts to teach in parables. Now, we'll talk about this more, but there's a progression in Jesus' ministry in each gospel, where there's, he presents himself, there's an initial acceptance and some favor to Jesus, but eventually people begin to question Jesus, and then there's outright hostility to Jesus. And in the chapter before, we have Jesus being accused of working miracles by the power of demons. And it's at that moment, or around that time, that Jesus shifts in his ministry, and he starts to teach in parables. Now this passage begins with the parable of the soils but look down at the descriptions of the parables each time they begin like verse 24 the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good field or good seed in his field or verse 31 the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field or verse 33 the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour. And we see the same thing in verse 45 and verse 47. So notice this about the parables. And these parables are not just spiritual truths. They describe the kingdom. And you'll notice that many of these parables have something to do with hiddenness or waiting And then a final revelation, you have the seed being planted and later it manifests a plant, or you have have a leaven being put into flour and later it leavens the dough. So it is with God's kingdom. The kingdom is not lost. It will come, but it will not come immediately. The kingdom will be hidden like a small seed planted in the ground. And in the future, The the kingdom will come like a giant tree spreading across the earth. But what must the faithful remnant do in the meantime? What about Jesus' disciples? What about his followers? Well, we see this in the preceding chapters of Matthew. Matthew 18 to 20, they give a number of directives for righteous living while believers wait for the kingdom. Furthermore, in Matthew 24 to 25, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus warns, that tribulation will come before the kingdom arrival. But he urges perseverant faithfulness until that time for the sake of reward. The kingdom will come, just as Jesus says during his Passover meal in Matthew 26, 29. This is Matthew 26, 29. Jesus says to his disciples, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. It was necessary for Messiah to suffer on behalf of his people for their sins and to be rejected by them. But the kingdom, Messiah's kingdom was not lost. Jesus rose from the grave and announced uh, and announced uh, the following before his ascension, the very end of Matthew, Matthew 28, Verses 18 to 20. So now we're at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now notice, this last phrase at this last verse, the end of the age, this phrase also appeared in Matthew 13, talking about the parables. It says at the end of the age, this thing will happen. Well, those parables were about the kingdom. So when Jesus says, I'll be with you to the end of the age, he's making reference to the coming kingdom. At the end of the age, that's when we'll see the judgment. But That's also when we'll see the kingdom coming. Jesus says, fulfill this commission, make disciples until I come with my kingdom, and I will be with you until then. Right, that will have to do for our survey of Matthew. We can only note so many details in the time we have. But let's sum up our findings. Let's bring all these different pieces together. What does Matthew want us to recognize about Jesus? What special message does Matthew have for us regarding Jesus? Well, it is that Jesus is the king. He is Lord, God, man, servant, but he is the king. But also, he's the king whose kingdom is still coming. He's the king whose kingdom is still coming and whose true citizens must persevere in faithfulness in order to enter into that kingdom. So I'll say that again. Jesus is the king whose kingdom is still coming and whose true citizens must persevere in faithfulness for entrance into Messiah's kingdom. Now, such a word would have been timely for believing Jews in the early church. Because if they're Jews, they've been expecting the kingdom, they've been waiting for the kingdom to come. Messiah came, but where was the kingdom? But here's an explanation from Matthew. He he lays out well, no, he had to be rejected. At first, in his first coming. And the kingdom was delayed, but it will come. But only those who truly repent and persevere will enter into that kingdom. So that's Matthew. Let's now move over to Mark. Turn to Mark 1, please. I'll pause for questions after Mark, but let's go to Mark. Mark chapter 1. Mark has many similarities to Matthew. Mark also presents Jesus as the Messiah, as the King. And Jesus, again, demonstrates his divine authority via astounding miracles. Amazement is one of the things that we see a lot in Mark. But Mark has very few references to the Old Testament, like, uh, unlike Matthew, who does. And Mark uses language that is more akin to a Gentile and even a Roman audience. For example, Mark uniquely uses transliterated Latin words in his gospel, rather than just using the Greek. He transliterates a Latin word into Greek. Furthermore, Mark sometimes translates Aramaic words for his audience. Aramaic would be what the Jews were speaking. It's very similar to Hebrew. Moreover, Mark leaves out uh, many of the events that Matthew discusses and many of the lengthy discourses of Jesus. It's not that Mark doesn't feature any teaching of Jesus or that he he doesn't mention Jesus' teaching at all. He actually does emphasize Jesus' preaching ministry, but we don't receive as much the content of that teaching in Mark as we do in Matthew. Now notice how Mark begins, not with Jesus' birth, but with what? Who is the first person we hear about? John the Baptist. It begins with John the Baptist ministry and then Jesus being baptized by John. And look looked at verse 12 and following. Verse 12, what term frequently appears in Mark with each new action? Immediately. Yes. And I know you've heard this from Pastor as he's preached through Mark. This is a unique aspect of Mark. Everything seems to be happening immediately after something else. Now, this is a rhetorical device to draw the reader or the listener into the narrative. Mark wants to emphasize that what's happening is very important and dramatic. It's like you don't want to take your eyes off of Jesus because something amazing or something else amazing is about to happen. There's a... Emphasis on action and drama in the book of Mark. Now go back to verse one. Notice the term gospel appears in this verse. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And look down to verses 14 to 15. Chapter one, verses 14 to 15, where it says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we read a very similar statement in Matthew just a moment ago. After Jesus begins to preach, he says the kingdom is at hand. But here in Mark, he adds two phrases. He says you need to repent or actually that was also in Matthew. But he says you not only need to repent, but also believe believe the gospel and remember we we talked about what gospel means just means good news repent and believe the gospel though mark is the shortest of the four gospel accounts he uses the term gospel more than the other writers seven eight times in mark depending on whether you count the last one compared to five in matthew six in luke and one in john and they all feature the gospel to some extent but mark the most even in a short amount of space Mark also includes the term gospel in some key statements on discipleship from Jesus, such as Mark 8.35. You recognize this verse, probably. Mark 8.35, Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Now, that phrase is not in Matthew or, I think, Luke's version of that statement. And the Gospels is a phrase unique to Mark. Mark then emphasizes in his account both the believing of the message of Jesus and the declaring of that message to others. It's about the Gospel. Another striking difference in Mark is the utilization of space. In Matthew, we get to chapter 13 before opposition causes Jesus to start teaching in parables. So Matthew's 28 chapters, that's chapter 13, almost halfway through. But look over at Mark chapter 4. Mark is 16 chapters, but in chapter 4, we've already hit the parables. Jesus already begins speaking in parables, because in chapter 3, they're already, the opposition has already culminated against him. They're already calling him a demon-empowered Cast her out of demons. So very quickly, we move to. Um, very quickly, we move to the hostile part of Jesus's ministry, in Mark. Most of Mark is told in the context of opposition and hostility toward Jesus and his message. And yet, in the midst of this hostility, we still read statements like Mark seven thirty four. So you can turn over there, Mark seven thirty four. Actually, I think I had the wrong uh, wrong reference. I think it might be Mark 8, 34. Nope. Oh, is it chapter 6? Yeah, chapter 6, chapter 6, 34. Apologize about that. So Mark 6, 34, we read, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So even though opposition has already culminated in in, in a way against Jesus, he's already had to shift to his parables ministry, we see that out of compassion, Jesus still teaches the people and even does a momentous miracle of multiplying food out of compassion for them. So even though there's this hostility, Jesus continues to serve and teach the people. And then the most key section of Mark is Mark 8 and 9. Look over at Mark 8. In Mark chapter 8, or Mark 8: 22 to 26, we get a miracle account only given in Mark: the miracle of the blind man who is healed in two stages. This account is very strange, unless we consider the context that comes right after. Remember, the man—he's healed partly. He said, and Jesus asks him, "What do you see?" And he says, "I see men walking around like trees." And Jesus uh, does something else. Then he says, now what do you see? And he's able to see clearly. But notice what comes right after. How does what happened after this miracle allow us to make sense of the uh, purpose of the miracle? We have this two-part healing. man who was partially able to see and then it fully able to see and then we have something with the disciples afterwards what's the connection well let's notice what does take place afterwards so okay starting in chapter chapter 8 verses 27 and forward Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Or who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And they come up with the right answer. Uh, Verse 29. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Wow. Good job, Peter. You understood something. (laughs) You understood something really essential. You see. But it's only partial sight. Because immediately when Jesus tells him what Being Messiah means that he's going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. What does Peter do? He tries to rebuke Jesus. This will never happen to you. Oh, Peter, you don't see. You disciples don't see. Or rather, the disciples only see partially. So it's the same thing as what the blind man was experiencing. He was partially healed of his sight and then fully healed. So it is with the disciples. This this miracle is actually an illustration of what the disciples are experiencing spiritually. They only have partially healed sight. They recognize Jesus as Messiah King, but they're still blind to the full reality of Jesus' Messiahship. Which is why Jesus clarifies in in verses 34 to 35 what it means to be a disciple of Messiah. So chapter 8, verses 34 to 35. Jesus says, or it says, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So this is critical. And it's related to what Jesus revealed about his own ministry. Jesus declares, for those that truly believe in me, they must become like me. They must take up their own crosses of execution. They must deny themselves and follow me. If Messiah suffers, then his followers must suffer as well as they believe and declare the gospel. Chapter 9 takes us a step further. Look we'll at chapter 9, verses 34 to 35. Or 30, 35 to 45, I'm sorry. Chapter 9 of Mark, verses 35 to 45. James and John, at at this moment, just asked for a special place in Jesus' coming kingdom. Grant that we'll be on your right and left, they they ask. Now again, there's partial sight and partial blindness in this request. They do believe that Jesus is king and he will bring his kingdom. But they still don't understand the heart of Messiah or what following Messiah means. So Jesus must explain. This is verses 42 to 45. Uh, yeah. Nope. No, not 42. Uh, back where I said first. Uh, verse 35. 35. Calling them to himself. Is that the right reference? No. Okay. Hold on. Just a second. Uh, I'm looking for the, the sub part that says, Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, Oh, where is that? Was it 42? For some reason, I'm not seeing it. Did I go to the wrong chapter? Mark chapter 9, verse 42? Wait, I think it's actually... Chapter 10, (laughs) that's why. Oh, I need to get these chapters straight. So Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. This is where it says, Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. By the way, this verse, uh, this section is only in Mark and Matthew. Matthew does record it too, but it's only these two Gospels. So Jesus is showing Not only what it means to be Messiah, but what it means to be Messiah's follower. Not only does one suffer like Messiah, but one will be a servant, just as Messiah came to serve and give his life for others to save them. And it's no accident that after this fuller disclosure of who Messiah is and what it means to follow him, what occurs next in the narrative? But a blind man is fully healed. Again, this is not an accident. This is this is connected. This man is an illustration. This miracle is an illustration of the revelation of Messiah. And this blind man, he does exactly what a true disciple should do, which is he leaves um he leaves his old life behind and he follows Jesus. So, following Messiah means lowly serving and suffering like Messiah himself. Like Matthew, Mark records in Mark 13, Jesus' announcement of coming tribulation in the Olivet Discourse, and he exhorts his disciples, or Mark records the exhortation to persevere. And we see the agony of Messiah suffering as the servant king in Mark 14 to 15, in his betrayal, in his crucifixion, the righteous one dying as a ransom, just as he said. But then we have Mark 16. Turn to Mark 16. Now, this is right where pastor is preaching from today, so you're going to hear more about this later. Hopefully, I'm not going to say anything that would contradict the pastor. If I I do, just listen to the pastor. There is an issue in Mark 16 regarding the true ending of Mark. You probably have this noted in your Bibles. The earliest manuscripts, the most reliable manuscripts, do not contain any words after verse 8. And according to the principles of textual criticism, this strongly suggests that verses 9 to 20 were not original to Mark. They were added later by somebody else. Moreover, the content of verse 9 does not really fit the flow of verse 8, especially the reintroduction of Mary Magdalene as the one who's had seven demons cast out of her. Therefore, I believe that Mark ends in verse 8. That was the original ending of Mark's gospel. But what an ending. Let's look at verses 6 to 8. Mark 16, verses 6 to 8. Jesus has risen, and this is what the angel says to the women. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you'll see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is so striking. The book ends with the triumph of the Messiah servant. He's risen. He's going ahead of you. Go tell the disciples. But what don't the the women do? The book ends with the statement that they didn't tell anybody. How could they not tell anyone? Well, in one sense, we we know why. It's just so amazing. They're overcome with amazement and fear. This is just incredible what's happened. And again, that's been a theme in Mark. But on the other hand, if it's so incredible, you've got to tell people. You can't just not tell people. This is the most amazing and great news any uh, great news anyone could have ever received. How could you not tell anyone? I believe this is the point of ending Mark in this way. We know, of course, that the women did eventually tell others. After all, we do have this gospel. That, that meant that women had to tell other people. But Mark wants his readers to feel provoke, provoked into thinking about how important it is to believe and share this amazing gospel. Which reveals and announces an amazing reality of what's happened. It's like Marcus saying, if you think it's completely crazy that these women would not tell people the good news that they received from the angel, so it is for you. You would be completely crazy and heartless not to believe and share this news with others. So we come back to our question about purpose. What does Mark want us to see about Jesus? Here's my view. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the servant who will be truly imitated by his followers, both in suffering and in the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is the servant who will be imitated by his followers, and they will serve and suffer just like their master as they believe and share the gospel. Why was this message needed when it was written? Mark appears to be written in a context of persecution, perhaps even Nero's persecution around uh, in the 60s AD. Romans were tempted to reject the message or after believing it, just refuse to share it due to the consequences of suffering. But Mark wants to make clear, if you believe that Jesus is truly the Messiah, then you must suffer like he did as a servant and as a gospel witness. If you become like your Savior, if you become like your Savior, you can be sure you have a place in His kingdom. Running a little bit short on time, but any quick questions on Matthew or Mark? All right, let's keep moving. We, we, we won't say as much about Luke and John since we've already talked about their purposes a little bit in our previous class, but I will make a few more comments on these two Gospels. Over to Luke. Luke is the longest gospel. Even though it has fewer chapters than Matthew, it is technically longer, and it's quite detailed. Important for us to realize about Luke is that Luke is intimately connected with Acts. The two works are designed to emphasize a common point, both written by the same man to the same person to drive home the same point. What is that point? That the message of salvation that Paul declared and that was believed by the Gentiles for their inclusion into the, God's church is the unaltered truth from uh, the unaltered truth about the God man, Jesus. They haven't been given an incomplete gospel or an altered gospel. This is truly what happened. And this is truly the message of salvation. Now this overarching point explains some of the distinctive features of the gospel of Luke, such as an emphasis on the sovereign plan of God. 18 times in Luke, we see the phrase had to be or must be. For example, chapter 2, verse 49 of Luke, Luke 2, 49. This is after Jesus is left behind in the temple. Jesus responds to his parents and he says to them, why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? It had to happen this way. Or Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Jesus says to his disciples, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. I must do this. This is the plan. Luke also quotes extensively from the Old Testament in his gospel. Even though it's written to Gentiles, he quotes in the Old Testament to demonstrate that Gentile salvation was not an alteration of God's plan, but it was a fulfillment of what God foretold. Everything in Luke and in Acts proceeds just as God foreordained, even the suffering of Jesus and his apostolic witnesses. So we see God's sovereign plan. We also see an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Luke uniquely highlights the the phrase the spirit or the holy spirit in his two works spirit descended visibly on the church in acts chapter two soon after jesus ascension and we see many works of the spirit in acts but luke stresses that that same spirit is at work in luke and in the account of jesus life god's supernatural working is totally consistent the same spirit that brought the gentiles into the church was the spirit that worked through jesus and uh, those around jesus So we see the Holy Spirit. We also see, and this we talked about a little bit before, an emphasis on the universality of the gospel message of salvation, especially for the lowly, the outcast, and the Gentile. There are a whole bunch of examples of this in Luke, but I'll just give you a few just to illustrate. Luke is the only one to record the visit of the lowly shepherds to Jesus after his birth in Luke chapter 2. No other gospel mentions that. Also, Luke is the only one to record the conversion of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, in Luke chapter 19. Definitely would have been a Jew, but also an outcast to to be a tax collector. Also, Luke is the only one to record Jesus' rebuke to the people of Capernaum in Luke chapter 4, verses 23 to 30. If you remember what that rebuke is all about, Jesus reads from a scroll in Isaiah, uh, he says, that I'm the fulfillment of that scroll. And then he says, you're going to quote some Proverbs to me. You're going to reject me. But I tell you, but I want to remind you that in the Old Testament, God saved humble Gentiles like the widow at Zarephath, the Sidonian widow of Zarephath, and Naaman the Syrian over stubborn, rebellious Jews. Of course, when he said that, that just enraged the Jews and they wanted to kill him immediately. But Jesus is making a point, says humble Jews will be included in God's kingdom over, or humble Gentiles will be included in God's kingdom over you. If you are stubborn and rebellious, Luke's the only one who records that instance. So with this brief survey, let's come back to our question. What does Luke's gospel by itself tell us about Jesus? What does he want to emphasize? I would say it's that Jesus is the God-man who came to save all people. He's the man who came to save all men who simply believe in him, Jew or Gentile. You don't need to add um, ceremonial provisions from the law. You don't have to become a Jew. It is simply by repentance and belief in Jesus. All men will be saved by the God-man Jesus. Now, why would this gospel confirmation be necessary for the Gentiles at the time of Luke's writing? Well, according to Acts, the Judaizers had quickly come among Paul's converts and insisted that Gentiles cannot be saved unless they live according to the law and become circumcised. Moreover, as we also see in the book of Acts, the Jews persecuted Jewish Christians who were looking to share the gospel with Gentiles. Both of these situations would probably prompt the new Gentile believers, those who came to faith through Paul's ministry, to wonder whether they really believed the right gospel. Luke says, no, the gospel has always been to all men, not simply to the Jews and not saying that people must become like Jews. So we see Luke, and now finally, John. John is the latest of the gospels and the most unique. John, very likely aware of the other three gospels, deliberately chose not to discuss most of the same events in the other gospels, though he does sometimes give extra information on a few of the events that are also recorded elsewhere. The primary intended audience of the Gospel of John is a little perplexing. On the one hand, John features a number of quotations of the Old Testament, but not as many as Matthew. And there are many allusions to the Old Testament in John that are made without explanation. For example, John does not attempt to explain the title the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In John chapter one, verse twenty-nine and verse thirty-five, this is a phrase unique to John, but he doesn't explain it. To appreciate that phrase, you have to be familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system, how a lamb can be a substitute for sin. Another example: John does not attempt to explain Jesus' words about the angels ascending or descending on the Son of Man. Jesus says that in John one fifty, John chapter one, verse fifty-one, uh, right after. Um, is it Nathaniel? Uh, he he expresses belief in Jesus, and he says, "You think it's amazing because I told you what you were doing before you came to me. I tell you, you're going to see angels descending, uh, ascending, and descending on the Son of Man, on me. This is an allusion to the dream of Jacob in Genesis 28, where he or Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending on a heavenly staircase. That's Genesis 28 verse 12. John doesn't explain that. The audience is assumed to be able to recognize that. So that leans towards a Jewish audience. On the other hand, John does explain in John chapter 4 verse 9 that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, which is an odd explanation if you're writing to Jews because that would have been obvious to any Palestinian Jew. Of course Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. We don't like those people. And then in John 5, John introduces the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem to his hearers as if they were unfamiliar with it. Oh, there's this pool in Jerusalem uh, that this uh, lame man was gathering next to named Bethesda, as if they didn't know about this. Furthermore, very striking, or yeah, furthermore, John often refers to Jesus' opponents in the Gospel of John simply as the Jews. Whereas in the other Gospels, he called them the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees. Most of the time in John, it's just the Jews. Also, John John translates Aramaic terms into Greek for his readers. So we see things that suggest a Jewish audience, but then there are these kind of odd qualities that don't really fit with a Jewish audience. So my explanation of these details, my tentative explanation of these details, is that John does write to Jews, but to Hellenized Jews. Jews influenced by Greek culture who are used to reading the Bible in Greek and who don't live in Palestine. They are Hellenized Jews elsewhere in the Mediterranean. That would make sense, I think, of the different details. A few other distinctives to note from the Gospel of John is very theological. There are only seven or eight miracles, depending on how you count it, recorded in John. But each miracle is specially chosen. It's tied to a theological truth about Jesus that's usually explained in the passage before or right after the miracle. As an example, after the feeding of the 5,000, In John chapter 6, we get teaching from Jesus. And what's the teaching on? How Jesus is the bread of life, superior to any earthly bread. So there's a connection between the miracle and the theology of Jesus. Indeed, John contains many words from Jesus, or John contains many words from Jesus, especially regarding Jesus' identity. We know that various I am statements, those famous I am statements, they all come from the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. All of those come from John and are expressed by Jesus. And we could also add John 8:58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, these statements... Emphasize the exclusive nature of Jesus' message. In many ways, John is the most direct and confrontational of the gospels. It is the anti-postmodernism gospel, if I can say that phrase. He doesn't leave you with any avenue for inclusivity. There are no many roads to lead to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the one. So reading the book of John should not leave one in any doubt as to who Jesus actually is or the seriousness of Jesus' claims. Jesus is, John declares, the great servant Messiah, the God-man, Yahweh in flesh, the only salvation for sinners. Tied to this theological emphasis, understandably, is an emphasis in John on belief the word believe is used 98 times in John's gospel, five to 10 times more than in any of the other gospels. You must believe. And we know the most famous example, John 3, 16. God's loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So you must believe. But John demonstrates that not all belief in Jesus is the same. Not all of it is the same or worth commending. Look at John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. John 2, verses 23 to 25, where we read this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is very poignant. In a sense, the people believed, but Jesus did not believe in their believing. John emphasizes there is such a thing as incomplete or superficial belief in Jesus. John says similarly in John 12, verses 42 to 43, that many of the rulers believed in Jesus, yet they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue because these men loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So on one hand, we get confused by that statement. It's like they believed in him, but they loved the approval of men. John is emphasizing there is such a thing as superficial or incomplete belief. You have to truly believe in Jesus. So let's bring this together. What, is, what does John want us to understand about Jesus? Here's my answer. John shows us that Jesus is Messiah God who qu- requires true belief in who he truly is for eternal life. Jesus is the Messiah God, but you have to truly believe in who he truly is in order to be saved. Why was this message necessary? Certainly persecution is always an impediment to belief. and It's possible that as he writes to the Jews, or those with a Jewish background, they knew that by believing in Jesus, they'd be persecuted not only by the Romans, but by the Jews themselves new Jewish converts are going to be cut off from their families and communities, treated as non-Jews for following Jesus. Therefore, there probably was a temptation among these Jews, as is evident in the book of Hebrews, to downgrade belief in Jesus. To believe in Jesus in a superficial way. Yeah, I I accept Jesus, but I'm not going to say that he's God. They wanted Perhaps to believe in a Jesus who is less than who Jesus truly is. John stresses, you can't do that. You can't do that and be saved. The only way you can obtain salvation is if you go all the way in believing in Jesus. You have to believe in the Jesus who really is. Well, let's wrap up. I've looked at the four Gospels. What were their unique messages? I think, I know that people might frame their messages slightly differently than I have today, but should be something along these lines. Matthew says, Jesus is the Messiah King whose kingdom is still coming for the faithful. Mark says, Jesus is the servant Messiah whose followers will serve and suffer like him. Luke says, Jesus is the Messiah who came to save all men, Gentiles included. And John says, Jesus is the Messiah God who must be truly believed as he is in order to obtain eternal life. What does this mean for us today? Certainly, we can apply these messages to ourselves. Do we believe these things? Do we believe that Jesus is the king whose kingdom is still coming? Do we live as those who will be citizens in that kingdom, who will find a place in that kingdom? Do we believe that Jesus is the one who suffered on our behalf? Then do we suffer on his behalf? Do we become like him? in our proclamation of the gospel in service and in suffering do we believe that Jesus is the one who came to bring salvation for all apart from works apart from any external requirements or do we try to add works to our own salvation or in the message we proclaim you've got to become like um you have to become like me you have to become like an american christian if you want to be saved or Also, do we believe that Jesus is the one who John painstakingly demonstrated? He is Yahweh in human flesh. Do we confess him to be the only way? And does our belief in him cause us to abide in him and keep his commandments? We should note, just by looking at all these gospels, they all gave the same message, but their message was tailored to the audience. They didn't change the message, but they were paying attention to what their audience already knew And what were the key issues for the audience? They cut to the issue. Mark, Mark, for instance, you guys are tempted to reject this gospel or to hide this gospel due to persecution. I want to emphasize to you that you can't do that. Or John, you're tempted to believe that Jesus is less than he is. I'm going to make explicit for you who Jesus actually is so that you don't miss it because I want you to be saved. We should do the same in our own evangelism and discipleship. Let's pay attention. Let's be, be aware. Try to discern. What do people already know? And what are the issues that are holding them back from Christ? Because we want to we get to those issues. As we hit the other thing, is we, we haven't really got the core. So this is, these differences, these messages, they are relevant for us. Well, that's we're out of time for today. If you have questions or comments based on today's lesson, please email me. We can continue this conversation, but that's it for this week. Next week, we still continue our introduction to the New Testament and the Gospels as we overview Jesus' life and ministry, and we work out a chronology of Jesus' life. What happened when? Now, the Gospels are all recording things. Well, what's the timeline? We're going to construct that next week. Let's close in prayer. Our God, we know that these messages are, are crucial. We do love your gospel. We do love that you have revealed to us the truth about Jesus. But these gospel writers that you moved by your spirit, they knew that their audiences were dealing with certain things. There were temptations. There were concerns. There were struggles. And they wrote to address those things. And we have those same struggles. We are weak just as uh, the original recipients were. And we need, we need sanctification. We need strengthening. So we pray that you would do that by the words of your gospel, by the preaching of the pastor today, by the fellowship of the people in the church. Pray that you build up and bless your people today. Amen. All right, everyone, I'll see you next week.